Uh, good morning to each of you. It's great to be here on this Resurrection Sunday, and I invite you to turn with me in God's Word to the book of Mark, chapter 14. The book of Mark, chapter 14. And I'm going to begin by reading a number of select verses from this chapter. I'll mention them as we go. And I ask you to follow along as I read them publicly. And I ask you to take note of a recurring theme in these verses. I'll try to emphasize this theme to ensure everyone catches it. Uh, But it will serve you well for where we're going this day. And so begin by following along in verse 26 of Mark 14. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter, did you catch that? Not so subtle. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they go into the garden of Gethsemane. And the Lord Jesus pours out his soul before the Father. And the disciples fall asleep. And look at what we read in verse 37. And he, again that is Jesus, came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Most of us are familiar with what happens next. Judas arrives on the scene. He betrays Jesus with a kiss. They take him prisoner. And lead him to the court of the high priest. And now follow along as I read in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests. And the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance. Right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards. And warming himself at the fire. And so the trial of the Lord Jesus begins. Skip down to verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them, but again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Did you catch the recurring theme? It is Peter. Now that raises an obvious question. It raises an important question. This is a chapter, as we read these verses, this is a chapter that describes for us the agony of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. It describes for us his betrayal. Judas, who who arrives on the scene and betrays him with a kiss, it, it describes for us the beginning of this mock trial where the very Son of God, man, stands and sits in judgment upon the very Son of God. It is odd to me, it is strange to me, that Peter should receive so much attention In this chapter, why does Peter 
figure so prominently in a chapter which is describing for us the agony and betrayal and trial of Jesus Christ? The answer is this, and friend, I don't want you to miss this. We are Peter. You are Peter. And I am Peter. And the Spirit of God intends for us to learn something from Peter's example. The Spirit of God intends for us to learn something from Peter in the context of the agony and betrayal and trial of Jesus Christ. Now you're asking yourself, this is Resurrection Sunday. I thought we were going to hear a sermon on the resurrection. What does this have to do with the resurrection? Friend, listen. Listen for the resurrection. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to glean what the Spirit of God intends for us to glean from this text concerning Peter. I'm going to sum it up in six truths, six lessons And you pay close attention to the theme of the resurrection and how it winds and weaves its way through these six truths. You're following that. So we begin with truth number one, lesson number one. And Ricky's going to help us out by putting these on on the screen behind us. Because these six lessons, I could have used my own words, but I thought it would be best just to stick with Scripture and sum up, succinctly express each of these lessons using the words of Scripture. And so here is the first lesson that we are to glean from Peter's example. It is summarized wonderfully, beautifully for us in Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Fifteen years ago, I... I don't know if I heard that verse for the first time, but I began to wrestle with that verse for the first time. I began to struggle with its significance, its meanings, and its implications. I began to struggle with this tremendous truth and reality that our God, the Almighty, is absolutely sovereign. Peter ought to have learned that from this series of events And friend, we must learn that wonderful and glorious truth from this series of events. Turn with me, turn back with me to verse 27. And look with me at what the Lord Jesus says there. He prophesies. You will all fall away. He's speaking to his disciples. You will all fall away, for it is written. And now he looks back. And he goes back to the book of Zechariah, penned some five centuries before this event. It is written, I will strike the shepherd. It is the Lord of hosts, God speaking. The shepherd is the Lord Jesus. The father will strike the son. And what will be the result? The sheep, he is referencing his disciples, they will be scattered. And now look at what he says in verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. The father is going to strike the son. That's going to happen. The sheep are going to be scattered. That's going to happen. I will rise again. That too is going to happen. And I'm going to meet you again. We're going to gather again. My death is not the end. We're going to gather again in Galilee. He foretells, he prophesies these four events, and he embeds them where? In the Old Testament, in the Scripture. A Scripture penned 500 years before Christ uttered these words. What do we see here? We see the Lord Jesus looking back. We see the Lord Jesus looking ahead. We see that Jesus fulfills what lies behind him. And he foretells what lies before him. Friend, understand, please grasp this. As this this dark scene unfolds, Herod is not in control. Pilate is not in control. Judas is not in control. The Jewish council is not in control. God alone is in control. What we have here is simply the unfolding, the revealing, the culmination of God's eternal plan. Oh, hear these words, friend. God has one great plan. 
that encompasses all ages and embraces all things. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. God's reasons are not our reasons. God's timing, and though it pains me to say it, is not my timing. God's judgments are unsearchable. God's ways are inscrutable. Our knowledge of things is severely limited. But God's knowledge of things is absolutely limitless. We judge things according to our finite perspective. But Almighty God knows all things by one infinite act of understanding. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. My faith, and I pray yours too, is rooted in this God. This God who is absolutely powerful, whose knowledge is limitless, whose sovereignty is incomparable. Our faith is rooted in Him, His power, His knowledge, His sovereignty, His incomprehensibility. And write this sentence down if you can. Remember it if you can. This God and this God alone anchors the soul in the midst of storms and refreshes the soul in the midst of drought. Oh, what a wonderful truth. Peter ought to have learned it as these circumstances unfold before his very eyes. And as the Lord Jesus roots everything that is about to transpire in Scripture and makes it clear that it is all happening in accordance with God's eternal plan, there, friend, you have an anchor in the midst of the storm. There you have a boundless spring in the midst of drought. Tremendous truth. Our God is in the heavens, and He does all that He pleases. Lesson number two is this. It's taken from 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Let me repeat it. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. A Paul simply means this. We are weakest when we think we are strongest. Did you get it? We are actually weakest when we think we presume to be strongest. That comes out in verses uh, 29 through 31 of our passage. Turn there again with me. The Lord Jesus has foretold exactly what's going to happen. That the, the shepherd, will, will, will be, the father will strike the son. As a result, the sheep will be scattered. And then he predicts the resurrection. But look at what Peter says in verse 29. He hears the Lord Jesus. He knows exactly what he has said, what he has foretold. He objects. Even though they, the other disciples, even though they all fall away, not difficult to believe. I believe what you say concerning them. They, they probably will all fall away. But even though that comes to pass, I will not. And now Jesus looks squarely at Peter, makes another prophecy. Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will, not, you will deny me three times. Verse 31, Peter won't shut up, but he said emphatically. In other words, he's yelling now at the top of his lungs. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. He's not alone. Look at the very last statement in the verse. They all, that is the other disciples, said the same. We are actually weakest when we think we are strongest. Uh, Peter objects to what Jesus says. He outright rejects what Jesus says. Why? He has committed two deadly errors in terms of his thinking. Two deadly errors. The first is this. Peter misjudges his vulnerability to temptation. 
He misjudges his vulnerability to temptation. Peter, I think we can word it like this, as follows. Peter overestimates his strength, and he underestimates his weakness. That's deadly error number one. Second deadly error is this. Peter misjudges the subtle nature of temptation. It's fascinating as you read on in the narrative and... uh, Things occur as they do in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas shows up with all those soldiers. See, it's at that moment in the Garden, as Peter faces some trained, hardened soldier, that he thinks the test comes. It isn't. The test, the trial, does not come when Peter faces down that hardened, trained soldier in the Garden. It comes when he faces a little girl by the fireside. Friends, we so often, far too often, we misjudge the subtle nature of temptation. The greatest temptations come to us in the quietest moments. And so Peter objects, rejects what the Lord Jesus says. He has misjudged his vulnerability to temptation. And he has misjudged the subtle nature of temptation. Why? Peter has made an idol of something. Peter is trusting in something other than the person of the Lord Jesus. It might be, it's entirely possible that Jesus has made an idol of, uh, Peter, sorry, has made an idol of his knowledge. Uh, Previously, another event, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Peter makes that wonderfully profound declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Perhaps that declaration has gone to Peter's head. Perhaps he begins to think to himself, I understand things that other people do not understand. I have, I have insights into things that other people can only dream of. Because of my understanding, because of my knowledge, I'm beyond temptation. Friend, we must not make an idol of our knowledge. Oh, I can dissect complex theological issues. I can, I can quote obscure authors from the past. I can conjugate Greek verbs. I have entire books of Scripture memorized. Surely that places me beyond the tentacles of temptation. No, that simply makes me vain if that is what I'm trusting in. We trust in Jesus. We do not make an idol of our knowledge. I suppose it's entirely possible that Peter has made an idol of his experience, his privilege. He's one of the inner circle, the three. Peter, James, and John doing this. Peter, James, and John doing that. Jesus always taking aside Peter, James, and John from the rest. It's Peter, James, and John who are on the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe that experience has gone to his head. And Peter begins to think to himself, boy, I have been through things that other people will never experience. I have seen things that other people will never see. I have been on the mountaintop. I have seen the, the majesty of God Most High. I'm one of the inner circle. I'm one of the privileged ones. Friend, do not make an idol of your experience. We dare not make an idol of our privilege. And we must not make an idol of our position. Well, I'm a leader. I'm involved in this. I'm involved in that. I've been a Christian 30 years. I've been through battles. I've been on on mission teams. I've been involved in this. I've spent whole nights in prayer. I've done this. I've done that. I've done this. I've done that. Do not make an idol of your experience. Peter has made an idol of something. It could be his knowledge. It could be his experience. It could be his position, his privileged position. But Peter, at that moment, is trusting in something other than the Lord Jesus. And as a result, consequently, he misjudges his vulnerability to temptation. And he misjudges the subtle nature of temptation. We need to learn from Peter. How do we guard against that such folly? How How do we guard against falling prey to such a such a, cute, a skewed perspective of our own strength and weakness? The answer is the garden. The clear answer in the context is the agony of the Lord Jesus in the garden. As Jesus enters into the garden of Gethsemane, he leaves nine of the disciples behind. He takes Peter and James and John on with him further, and then he leaves them behind. He begins to become 
distressed and troubled in soul. He cries out to his Father, remove this cup from me. And as we look upon the Lord Jesus through the eyes of faith in the garden, in his agony, we see him horrified, sheer horror. Why? Because he experiences an inner sense of his Father's displeasure toward the sin that will be imputed to him. We see him in such anguish. We behold him in such agony. As one author expresses it, we see Jesus so holy that he had to die for us. So loving that he was glad to die for us. When we see Jesus like that, do you know what we become? And those of you who are at care groups going through our studies, this will make sense to you. It will all, I hope, fall into place here. Do you know what we become? Poor in spirit. When we see Jesus in the garden, pointing to what he experiences at Calvary's cross, when we behold the sheer horror, again, that inner sense which overwhelms him, his soul, as he feels in his soul his father's displeasure toward the sin that will be attributed to him upon Calvary's cross. Well, friend, that makes us poor in spirit. Uh, we realize we do not bring anything to the table when it comes to the Almighty God. We realize that um, it's time for us to tear up our spiritual resume. Don't pretend you don't know what I'm talking about. We've all got one, a big CV that we have just sort of there rooted in the back of our minds, listing off the things we've done, the people we are, the service we've rendered, the insights we have, There it is. No, when we see Jesus for who he is, we tear up our spiritual resume. We throw it in the fire, and then we take those ashes, and we throw them in the paluxy. We realize we have nothing left. We are spiritually barren before this God. And we mourn. Why? Because we see ourselves as we really are. And we become meek. Why? Because we realize, painfully so, that anything short of damnation is a mercy. God does not owe us anything. And as a result, what happens? We begin to starve for righteousness. And we find that righteousness where? In only one place, the person of the Lord Jesus. You see, friend, far too often we are weak when we think we are strongest. The truth is this, as we come face to face with the Lord Jesus in the garden and beholding his agony, And the result is that poverty of spirit and mourning and meekness and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It is when we know we are weak that we become strong. We learn that from Peter. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Lesson number three is expressed for us in the words of the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 5 verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Peter has a a problem, a huge problem. He's not alone. All of the disciples share this problem. Before anything happens, Jesus warns them, you're all going to fall away. The Father is going to strike the Son. I, as the Lord of hosts speaking, will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. And Peter denies the Lord Jesus three times. But before Peter even denies the Lord Jesus, beside that fire, in front of those bystanders, and and in front of that servant girl, he has already denied the Lord Jesus in the garden. As Jesus goes off by himself, falls prostrate, face down on the ground, pours out his soul to his Father, remove this cup from me, not that I will, but that your will be done. Three times he returns to the disciples. Three times he returns to Peter, James, and John. And three times he finds them sleeping. And he reminds them that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In Peter, we see what? We see Peter denying the Lord Jesus in the small and in the great. 
we see Peter not merely denying the Lord Jesus at the time of his trial. We see Peter not merely refusing to stand firm at the Lord Jesus' darkest hour. We have Peter failing even in the garden, fulfilling the simplest of things, watching and praying while Jesus pours out his soul in agony to his Father. I said it last week. I'm going to repeat it today. Friend, we are incapable of even one hour of true devotion to Jesus Christ. I think I checked that last week. I'm going to check it again now. We are incapable of even one minute of true devotion to Jesus Christ. We are weak, meaning what? We are riddled with sin. That confuses a lot of people. That confuses a multitude of people. Why? Because at times... uh, Sin's dominion is obvious, isn't it? We see the havoc which sin causes in some people's lives. Uh, It's destructiveness. We behold the consequences. It's plain for all to see. So Years ago, I I lectured at Toronto Baptist Seminary in the heart of Toronto, Jarvis Street. Tough part of town. You don't want to be down there after dark. And the uh, dominion of sin... Obvious for anyone who cares to look. The prostitute on the street corner. The drunk on the park bench. The dominion of sin, that is its consequences. Visible manifestations, obvious. But friend, you must grasp this, I must grasp this. At times, sin's dominion is not so obvious. But it is as real. It is as destructive. And it is as... Wicked. Sin reigns in us. That's what Paul means here when he says, while we were still weak. That is, while we were sinners. While we were under sin's dominion, sin permeating us. Corrupting all that we say. All that we think. All that we feel. All that we do. Here's the good news. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for Peter. Christ died for his people. In that verse, way back in verse 27, Jesus quotes from that beautiful passage, Zechariah 13, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. On Friday night in our Easter service, we went back to Zechariah 13. And we focused in, just just focused in and, and meditated upon the first statement in that verse, which is this. It is the Lord of hosts speaking. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. The Father awakens the sword, his sword of infinite justice. Not against the sheep, but against the shepherd. Not against a mere shepherd, but he says, my shepherd. He awakens the sword of infinite justice. Not against humanity, but against the man. Not against a mere man, but the man who is my associate. The man who stands next to me me. I'm going to use a fancy phrase. If you trip over it, just work through it. It is is crucial that we understand this. The phrase is this, penal, substitutionary, sacrifice. That summarizes Calvary's cross. It is a penal. That is, there was a penalty, a penalty, our penalty for disobeying God. For rebelling against God, that penalty, his wrath, his condemnation. It is a penal substitutionary, meaning what? The shepherd takes the place of the sheep. The Son of God takes our our place. It is a sacrifice whereby he is offered. And the sword of God's infinite justice pierces the heart of the Son of God as he hangs upon Calvary's cross. And here's the good news. Here's the great news. That 
piercing opens what? A fountain of cleansing blood. And all we have to do is what? We believe. We get into that fountain. And that fountain cleanses us from the guilt of sin. That is the doctrine of justification. And that fountain cleanses us from the filth, the stain of sin. That is the doctrine of sanctification. And here's an equally glorious truth. Not just what Paul says there in Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Here is an equally glorious truth. Again, Paul's words, Romans 4, 5. God justifies the ungodly. You know what that means? Friend, you don't clean yourself up to come to God. I don't need to get my act together to come to God. Here is the gospel. Here is the crux of the gospel. He, God, justifies the ungodly. How? Here's the greatest of news. He attributes my sin. And he attributes my unrighteousness, my disobedience to Jesus. And Jesus pays the penalty. Penal, substitutionary sacrifice. And God attributes the righteousness, the obedience of Jesus Christ to me. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The fourth lesson is this. Taken from Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. These are precious words. I pray they they don't just pass you by, but seep deep within. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Look at verse 71, still in Mark 14. Verse 72, the very last statement After the rooster crows for the second time, Peter has denied Jesus three times. Look at the very last statement. And he broke down and wept. Mark doesn't include a detail. I don't think Matthew or John included either. But Luke has it in there. Luke includes just this precious, precious detail in his account of this moment that when the the rooster crowed for the second time and Peter hears it, he looks at the Lord Jesus so he can see it afar and guess who is staring right at him? It is Jesus. And Peter breaks down and he weeps. This is a broken and contrite heart. This is repentance. I wish I didn't have to go down this road, but I do. I need to belabor this. Because sadly, there is much confusion. Sadly, regrettably, in our day, we have equated lamenting with repenting. Did you catch that? It's a subtle shift in words, but significant. We have confused lamenting with repenting. Just about everybody laments. Right? I've met tons of people, and I've been there. People who lament the mess they've made of things. People who lament the choices they've made, the decisions they've made, the courses they've chosen to go down. People who lament the pain, the suffering, the consequences of those actions and choices and decisions. People who lament the mess And they just want the mess to go away. I've sat across from people. I've spoken with people. And as they have unfolded their life, and as they have brought to light their sins, they are not repenting. What they are doing, regrettably, is lamenting. They are lamenting the mess they've made of their lives. And now they are looking for someone to help them manage the mess. Now they're looking for someone to help them cope with the mess. They're desperately searching for someone to help them clean up the mess. Oh, this is a graphic and somewhat distasteful comparison. But you think of it in terms of cutting an artery, right? Right? 
you cut an artery and you begin to bleed. And that blood is leaving your body at an alarming rate. What do you do? You don't waste any time cleaning up the blood that's fallen on the ground, right? You don't begin washing your hands. You don't take your little Dora Band-Aids and begin to apply them to the wound. What do you do? You need to stop the bleeding. You need to address the artery. You need to apply painful pressure to that artery to cut off the blood flow. You see the difference, friends. So many of us, I fear some in this room, have spent a lifetime of lamenting. Yeah, I wish things could be different. I wish I could go back and change things. I wish someone could just mitigate the pain and, and, and the suffering and the discomfort and the hassle that my life has become. Because yes, sins, call them sins if you want, choices I've made. Friend, do not confuse lamenting with repenting. Peter breaks down weeping. Why? He is not lamenting. Judas lamented. How did he manage the problem? He went out and hung himself. That's lamenting. Peter repented. Why? Because Peter got to the heart artery, the heart of the matter. And Peter understood the very nature of his sin. What was the very nature of his sin? He had denied the Lord Jesus. Friend, There is only one traitor in the narrative. It is Judas. There are 11 deserters, and Peter is one of them. We are all deserters. Every act of sin, whether it is a sin of commission, something we do, or a sin of omission, something we've neglected to do that we should have done, every act of sin, we must grasp this, is a denial of the Lord Jesus. When we see that, that reality breaks our hearts for sin. And that reality leads where? To repentance. And here's a wonderful truth, that when we come to the Lord Jesus in repentance, when we turn to Almighty God in repentance, He does not slam the door on our faces. One of the most painful experiences in life, and perhaps you've been through an experience like this, is when you've fallen out with someone, and time has passed, and you have uh, humbly attempted to reconcile. You've picked up the phone or you've written a letter or you've gone around to try to visit in an attempt to reconcile, an attempt to put things right, an attempt to smooth things over, only to have that person slam down the phone or slam the door in your face. That has got to be one of the most painful of life's experiences. But here's a great truth, a great lesson, a tremendous certainty. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Here's the good news, friend. Christian, remind yourself of this every day. If you aren't a Christian, you aren't a believer, I pray that what I'm about to say, I'm going to sum it up in just a couple of sentences. I pray that what I I say will, will enter in, it will seep down like gently falling rain upon parched earth, and the Spirit of God will make it real and alive to you. Friends, listen. The gospel, that is the good news of salvation. The gospel is not that we try to amass, put together a good record, and then present it to God. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has amassed, put together a perfect record. And he gives it to us when we repent and believe. That's the gospel. That Jesus at the right time, gave his life for the ungodly. And when we understand that, we perceive what he has done. We come in heartfelt repentance, acknowledging our sin for what it truly is. And we have this wonderful truth ringing in our ears. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Lesson number five taking it out of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've only given you part of the verse behind me. Let me give it to you in its entirety now. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, and so as a Christian, one who believes in the Lord Jesus, has repented of my sin, truly believes that that the Lord Jesus laid down his life for the ungodly, for me. The life I now live in the flesh, in my body, I live by faith 
in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To fully understand this, appreciate it, turn again with me to Mark 14 and look specifically at verses 28 through 30. Before Peter denies the Lord Jesus, firstly in the garden and then secondly at at the time of his trial, Jesus tells him three things. And in the three things he tells them, we see his affection for Peter. Uh, We behold wonderfully his care and concern for the man. First of all, the first thing he tells him is he he warns him. He He doesn't keep any secrets. He tells Peter exactly what's going to happen. He lays it out for him detail by detail. Yes, the father is going to strike the son, the shepherd, me. You will all scatter, and you will all deny me. You will all fall away. He warns him. But secondly, we see his, his wonderful, the depths of his care and his concern for Peter in this. He prepares for Peter's repentance. How? He employs the most fascinating thing. It's called a rooster. And he tells them, the rooster, the cock, is going to crow. And before the rooster sounds twice, you will have denied me three times. And the Lord Jesus sovereignly, beautifully, compassionately uses that cry of the rooster to what? To awaken Peter to what he has done, the depth of his sin, and to break him for his sin. He prepares for his repentance even before Peter has denied him. Third thing I want you to get is this. Not only has he, not is, not only has he warned him, And not only has he he prepared for his repentance, he has prepared for his restoration. Look closely at what he says in verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I read that, and I was was discussing this a little bit with the staff this past week because I I started to mull over that weeks ago. And the first question I thought of when I read that was, who cares? I get the first part. I'm going to be raised up. The second part, I will go before you to Galilee. Turn over just a moment to Mark chapter 16. As the women come on that resurrection morn, and they behold the empty tomb, and the angel addresses them. Look at what the angel says and pay Close, close and careful attention to what the angel says to these women in Mark 16, verse 7. But go, tell his disciples, wait for it, and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. Oh, friend, what did that mean to Peter? The book of Mark, you go all the way back. We're going to step up here just a little bit, get a bird's eye perspective. You go all the way back to chapter 1 when the Lord Jesus embarks on his ministry. Where is he? He's in Galilee. These boys, these disciples, they are Galileans. He first calls them in Galilee. He first commissions them in Galilee. He first sends them out in Galilee. A lot of water under the bridge since then. Peter has now gone through the darkest of trials, the trial of trials. He has committed the unthinkable. He has done from his perspective the unimaginable. And he is broken as he is gripped with the depth of his sin and his utter spiritual weakness. And he is weeping bitterly. He hears news that the tomb is empty. And then to have these women relate to him these words which Jesus first spoke and promised and prophesied before Peter's denial of him. These words, go tell his disciples, note the emphasis, and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. What does it mean? It is a new beginning. It is a new beginning. It is where he will again meet them. It is where he will again gather them. It is where he will again call them. And it is where he will again commission them. There we have the restoration of Peter. Fixed on what? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ushering in what? A new beginning. 
Christian, our life is a constant new beginning. We might even say a series of new beginnings. Yes, God has changed our legal standing. He has altered our legal status in his sight, whereby we are now one legally with his son. And he has attributed our sin and our guilt to his son. His son has paid the penalty in full, and he has attributed the righteousness and the perfect obedience of his son to us, whereby we stand accepted in his sight. And yet here we are struggling and wrestling with the flesh. Here we are daily combating our sin. How are we to live? It is an experience of new beginning day by day. Look at the words, Paul's words in Galatians 2.20. The life I now live in the flesh. How am I to live it? I live by faith. My faith daily is fixed on the Lord Jesus in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what that means? It means each day I simply savor my standing in Jesus. Get that? I simply savor my legal standing in Jesus. And when I see my sin and all its ugliness, I celebrate his forgiveness. And when I feel my guilt, I celebrate his merit. And when I perceive my weakness, I celebrate his strength. When I remember my pride, riddled with pride, I celebrate his humility. When I recall my failures, I remember his sufferings. When I feel my want, my lack, I celebrate his fullness. When I face temptation, I celebrate his tenderness. When I see my vileness, I celebrate his righteousness. And when I come face to face with my disloyalty, just like Peter, I celebrate his faithfulness. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Lesson number six brings us to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, the first couple of verses. I don't think I've given it to you in its entirety on the screen, but let me read it for you. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, and through this entire experience, Peter isn't looking to Jesus. He learns to look to Jesus. We must daily fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus. Who is he? He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. That is, he is the leader. He is the example of faith. How has he exemplified faith? He endured the cross, despising the shame. He turned his back on the suffering. Why? Because of that joy that was set before him. That joy set before him. What is that? It was the prospect of glorifying his father through the salvation of his people. And we see him now seated, his work accomplished, fulfilled at the right hand of the throne of God. In the 50s, I think it was, a young woman by the name of Florence Chadwick, she attempted to swim from the Catalina Island off the coast of mainland mainland California. She attempted to make the swim, I don't know how many miles it is, but quite the distance from that island to mainland California. And the day she decided to dive into the water, it was foggy, like thick as pea soup. She could, not, she could barely see the boats accompanying her in her swim. Fifteen hours into that swim, out of sheer exhaustion, she decided it was time to give up. And they pulled her up into the boat, and the boats, through that thick fog, started to make their way to the shoreline. They thought they were still miles away. You know how long, far away they were? Less than half a mile. Less than half a mile. She later gave an interview in which she said these words, I don't want to make excuses for myself. I'm the one who asked to be pulled out, but I think I would have made it if I could have seen the shore. Christian, we can see the shore. It's right there in plain view. We fix our eyes on Jesus, get our eyes off ourselves and our circumstances and our problems and everything else going on, and we fix them on the Lord Jesus. 
the, the author and founder, perfecter of our faith. And when we fix our eyes in Jesus, what do we behold? We see exactly where we are going. And we see precisely how to get there. Who for the joy set before him, the glory of the Father, endured the cross, despised the shame, the suffering, the pain, the turmoil, the anguish. He turned his back on it. He despised that shame as he compared it to the glory set before him, the joy set before him. And where do we see him now? We behold him seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There are six invaluable lessons that we learn from Peter in the context, and do not miss nor forget the context, of the agony and the betrayal and the trial of Jesus Christ. Alexander White wrote the following words. These, these are Peter's unmistakable footprints. Hasty, headlong, speaking impertinently and unadvisedly, ever wading into waters too deep for him, yet ready to repent and ever turning to his master again like a little child. Our Father, may we be little children in your sight. May we come to you as those who are helpless and hopeless, with faith firmly fixed and planted upon your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus. We celebrate the cross, what it signifies, what he accomplished there on our behalf. And we celebrate and revel in the resurrection. This glorious declaration that you have accepted his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. And you have declared your acceptance of that sacrifice by raising him from the dead. We pray, our Father, that we might grow in our appreciation of him. We pray that we might grow in the depth of our knowledge of him. We pray that you would fortify our faith, that we might walk daily with him. We seek these good gifts from you in his precious and matchless name. Amen.